0: In verse 1 of Mark chapter 11, it says, And when they came nigh to Jerusalem unto Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you. And as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way, and found the colt tied by the door, without in a place where two ways met, and they loosed him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye, loosing the colt? And they said unto them, even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast the garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. And they that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked around upon all things, and now the eventide was come, and he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. We'll pray as we begin. Lord, again, we just, uh, as we, look at your word and we look at um, this time as we're remembering um, the preparation that Christ was going through um, for his crucifixion, Lord, and today we call this Day Palm Sunday and we remember this entrance into Jerusalem, this welcome that Jesus received and the change that took place in the following week. And Lord, just, I just pray that you'd help us to uh, be honoring to you. I just pray that the words that I speak this morning would be a help to somebody and that they would be true and honoring to you as well. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, as we look at this time, we often, the Christian world and and even outside of the Christian world, knows the terminology that we use around this time of year. And I've seen numerous mentions. Um, I received an email of a reading plan for Passion Week. And this is the term that is often used um, to describe the suffering that Christ went through during this week. And I just, I remember, it doesn't seem like that far back in my life, some, somehow either this wasn't spoken of in the churches that I was growing up in, or I just wasn't paying attention. That's a, probably a better possibility. But this term passion was new to me at some point in my adult life. Um, I think it really came to light when uh, Mel Gibson made that movie, The Passion of the Christ. And the term passion, in my mind, didn't fit what Jesus went through. And so I had to learn what the word means. And as I was thinking about that, I looked up online, uh, and this is just whatever um, the online search gives for for definitions. So there's many different sources online of, of these definitions, different dictionary programs, but here's the definition that they give. It says, any powerful or compelling emotion or feeling as love or hate, a strong amorous feeling or desire, love, affection, an instance or experience of strong love or sexual desire, a, per- a person toward whom one feels strong love, a strong or extravagant fondness, enthusiasm, or desire for anything, as in a passion for music or writing or whatever, an object of fondness or desire, or an outburst of strong emotion or feeling. It seems funny that these are the description of the word passion, but then it gives an additional definition. It says the sufferings of Christ on the cross or his sufferings subsequent to the Last Supper or the narrative of Christ's sufferings as recorded in the Gospels. And this is what they give as the definition, but with one added note. Archaic, <laughs> the sufferings of a martyr. And I just thought it was interesting. And I know that that last definition that they just put as a, a subnote, as an archaic definition of the word passion, meaning the sufferings of a martyr, is the true meaning of the word in its use describing Christ's passion. And I just thought it was funny that. And it's not just this program's definition of the passion that used the sufferings of Christ on the cross as the definition of the word passion. And technically that's not the definition, but it's come to represent that. The real definition is the sufferings of a martyr, and that's what Christ was. And that's why the word was used initially. But it's interesting to me that Christ became the definition of that word. And so, of course, today is Palm Sunday, or known as the day of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem for Christ. And we read that in Mark 11... And we see he sends a couple of the disciples to go find this colt, this young donkey that is tied up. And even at this point, it's incredible. Jesus tells them to go find this thing. And they're, they haven't been in the city yet. They're coming from outside and they're coming to the city. And Jesus tells them where to go and find this animal tied up. And then he tells them if somebody questions what you're doing, tell them the Lord has need of it. And they'll let you go. And so not only do they enter the city and the donkey is where he said it would be, but as soon as they try to untie it to do what he's asking them to do, somebody's pipes off and starts to question what they're doing. And when they answer the answer that Jesus said to give, they actually let them take it. What an incredible series of events. I wonder what impact that had on these men that were sent to do this thing. How could Jesus have known every detail of what was going to take place as they went to do this task? And it just, it just demonstrates who Christ is, that he is the Messiah, that he is God in the flesh. Um, and there should be absolutely no doubt in these guys' minds in the days to come of who Christ is. And I think perhaps Christ is just affirming that in them because he knows how hard these coming days are going to be for these men. And they're going to need every possible reminder in order to be able to stand strong through that time. And we know that Peter even still denied Christ at some point along the way here. So I just want to look at a little bit of the symbolism that takes place in this passage. And as... To start with, this instance of Jesus going and just, or sending to take this colt for his use. And when somebody questions it, the answer is that the Lord has need of him. And they're going to let that animal go. If you look back at uh, various times in history, when a country is at war, and we don't see it quite the same way, today as we would have a couple hundred years ago. But when, the, when a country was at war, if the government had need of more horses, they could go and take your horse for their use. They could appropriate your property for use in that war effort. They wouldn't normally be allowed to do that, but during an extreme time as in a time of war the government could come and take your property and they were allowed to do that for the good of the whole and so this is kind of like Jesus is demonstrating that same kind of authority as a government has in, in those kinds of times he needed the use of this animal this animal belonged to somebody But when they're told the Lord needs him, they relinquished the right to restrain those people from taking the animal, and they allowed it to happen. They gave Christ the authority as the ruler over them. I don't know if these people really understood the symbolism of what they were saying and doing, but that's really what was taking place. I'm we'll going look back at a back in second King's chapter nine if you want to turn with me there to another example of or a picture that matches what's taking place here Second King's chapter nine I'm going to just read the the whole account here um, starting in verse. One, um, back down to verse 13. It says, And Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird up thy loins and take this box of oil in thine hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when thou comest thither, look out there, Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him arise up from among his brethren and carry him. To an inner chamber. Then take the box of oil and pour it on his head, and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then open the door and flee, and tarry not. And so the young man, even the young man the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead, and when he came, behold, the captains of the host were sitting, and he said, I have an errand to thee, O captain. And Jehu said, Unto which of all us? And he said, To thee, O captain. And he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head, and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed thee king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. And thou shalt smite the house of Ahab thy master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants the prophets and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole host of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall, and him that is shut up and left in Israel. And I will make the host of Ahab like the host of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the host of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. That's quite the story. (laughs) Verse 11 says, Then Jehu came forth to the servants of his Lord, and one said unto him, Is all well? Wherefore came this mad fellow unto thee? And he said unto them, Ye know the man and his communication. And they said, It is false. Tell us now. In other words, no, we don't know what he came for. You have to tell us. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and thus spake he to me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then they hasted and took every man his garment and put it under him on the top of the stairs and blew with trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. That's a bit of a story to get to the last verse. But we see Jehu is being anointed king by this prophet that was sent by Elisha. And he does it secretly. He takes him from the crowd into a private place to anoint him as the king. But the actions of this prophet stirred up the curiosity of the Other men that had been with Jehu, and when they come out of that room, and the prophet just takes off, doesn't hang around to ask for anybody to ask him questions, and they ask Jehu, What was he doing? What did he want with you? And his when his answer comes that he said, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel, look at their response. They hasted and took every man his garment and put it under him on the top of the stairs. There was, To me it's incredible that these guys just accept this anointing as being legitimate. This is God's anointing of him as king. But their response is to take off their coats and lay them on the ground for Jehu, so Jehu isn't walking on the bare dirty ground. They put their coats down for him to walk on. What a respectful action to take. What a action of submission to your king. And when we look at the story of Jesus and when he's entering the city, we see the same thing happening. In Mark 11, verse 7 says, And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. They're doing the exact same thing that these men did for Jehu when he was anointed king. They're taking their clothes, their coats, and laying them in the way for him to walk over top of. What a display of submission and respect. Acknowledging Christ as their king. There's no doubt that that is what this is symbolizing, what they are representing their submission to him. They were ready to accept him as their king at that moment. We also know that this is the fulfillment of prophecy in Zechariah. I'm going to read Zechariah chapter 9, starting in verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just. And having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And so this is the direct prophecy of exactly the thing that Jesus is doing. And it says, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. Christ is the rightful king of Israel. And this is the exact picture of him coming in and riding on an ass, upon the colt, the foal of an ass. But verse 10 carries on and it says, I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth as for thee also by the blood of thy covenant I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water and we see the salvation that Christ gives In these verses, but when we look at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, when we look at the way that he entered Jerusalem, people sometimes would question the choice of animal that Jesus used as he entered, and it is an interesting choice because we look at the foal. This is a young donkey. Donkeys are not known for their cooperation, and in particular, one that has never been ridden before. I love how the door is shutting in my face. <laughs> uh, this new, newly ridden, never ridden donkey is what Jesus gets on to ride into Jerusalem. Why a donkey? Why not a horse? And yes, I know that um, donkeys were a common form of transportation for people at the time. But there's more symbolism to it than that. I was trying to find a number of verses, and I could only find a couple, so instead of turning to all the different verses this morning, just pointing out when, uh, historically, when a king was entering in peace, they would typically ride upon a donkey. If a king was coming in dominion as a ruler um, or as coming to make war, it's then that they would ride on a horse. And there was a difference in the way that they presented themselves to show the kind of attitude, the, the way that they were coming into the city. Was it in dominance or was it in peace? And we see in, in 1 Kings chapter 1, the transition from David to Solomon. And yes, David rode on donkeys at different times, so it's not a consistent picture necessarily, but we look at David as a man of war, and the Bible describes him as a man of war. It's the reason why he wasn't allowed to build the temple. But his son Solomon was going to reign a reign of peace. And when he is... Presented in Jerusalem as their new king, he comes in riding on a donkey. And the donkey is representative of that peaceful kingdom that he is going to have. And so this choice of donkey that Jesus rides on is also symbolic of the peace. And we see in Zechariah that peace is described here And it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Chariots are used in war. And the horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. He's going to stop battles, war. And he shall speak peace unto the heathen. And his dominion shall be from sea, even to sea, and from the river, even to the ends of the earth describing a kingdom that Christ is going to reign over that encompasses the whole earth and there's going to be peace this is what Christ was offering when he entered into Jerusalem that day when those people were throwing their coats and these branches on the ground in front of him it was showing their acceptance of him as that king. And had they maintained that, they could have had him, in theory, they could have had him as their king. He, they, he could have set up his kingdom at that time. And that's, that's what the Jews were expecting the Messiah to do. But Jesus didn't have quite the same plan that they thought. And so things didn't work out quite that way at that time. There was an offer of peace in the way that Jesus entered Jerusalem. But the next time Jesus comes, it's that offer of peace is no longer there. If you want to turn with me, we're going to, I'm going to go to Revelation 19 and look at Jesus' second coming. Revelation 19, verse 11, says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness. He doth judge and make war. Remember, historically, the king coming to make war rode on a horse. If he was coming in peace, he would ride on a donkey. He came in peace the first time. but his second coming, he's coming to make war. Verse 12 says his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them. With a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm going to stop there, but this picture of Jesus' second coming is completely different than what he presented on this day as he entered Jerusalem on a donkey he he offered to come in in peace but when he was rejected that offer was taken away and Jesus is no longer going to come in peace he's not going to peacefully take over the world he is going to forcefully take over the world and this description his vesture is dipped in blood and I was reading different people's opinions on what that might look like one described it maybe this is his own blood representing the sacrifice of the cross but perhaps this is the blood of the people that are standing in his way When he's returning. And if we continue reading. He destroys everybody. That stands against him. When he returns. The rest of this chapter. Describes complete destruction. Of everybody that opposes. Who he is. Jesus' second coming. Is not one of peace. Not for those. Who stand against him. As a church, we're fortunate to have the, the blessing of being part of those riders that are coming behind him. We're a part of that army that comes to rule with Christ. And so we don't have to fear the wrath of God as we're sitting here waiting for his second coming. We don't experience the wrath and the destruction that falls in that wake but uh, we are part of that return in Christ so, so I want to look now at the we looked at this these people as they welcome Jesus coming into Jerusalem they're welcoming him representing him as a king As their Messiah, they're showing that respect and that acceptance of him. And a lot takes place in the next couple of days. But if we turn over to Mark chapter 15, this is only a couple of days later. Mark 15 verse 6. It says, now at that feast, he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. Jesus has already been arrested here. And Pilate has Jesus in front of the crowd. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them, that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. And Pilate answered them saying, Will ye will ye, that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Isn't that incredible that Pilate recognizes who Jesus is? He may be saying it in mocking, but in his heart he knows it's the truth. He knows that that's the welcome that Jesus received as he came into the city. The same crowd that is standing in front of him at this moment is the same crowd that threw their coats on the ground and welcomed Jesus as their king. Verse 10, he says, For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. But the chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And then Pilate said unto them, Why, what evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him. What a change in these people. How fickle. (laughs) are these people. And it says that they were moved by the chief priests to do this. The priests did not accept Jesus as their king, as their Messiah. And they were able to move the crowds, to change the hearts of the crowds, to go from honoring him as their king only a couple of days earlier to now having them shout out to have him crucified. How easy is it to change people? We looked at last summer and the crowds of people Many with good intentions, protesting evils that were taking place, things that had been done wrong, that they want corrected. And yet, those same crowds turned into a mob and completely destroyed five miles, five miles of the city street in Minneapolis. And that's just one city. This was supposed to be a protest against what was wrong in the world and somehow that crowd was swayed to turn violent and to cause destruction instead. How is that proclaiming good? They've turned their hearts, right? I wonder... If we look at the church, we look at if you look at statistics in churches today, more pastors are quitting than at any other time because their people are turning against them. We need to be careful that we're not swayed by the crowd. And have our good intentions turned into evil. We need to stick with our Bible. Stick to God. And be sure that we continue to honor God. Continue to lift him up. In Revelation chapter 2. There's the descriptions of these seven churches and in the very first one in Ephesus as he's described he's saying some good things about this church and then in verse 4 he says nevertheless I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly. Which says, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. And the assumption that I have in any case of what is their first love was of Christ, Christ crucified. And you see in Galatians, warnings of people turning back to Obeying the law as if their own actions, their own behaviors, their own self-control is what was going to preserve them and keep them worthy of salvation. It's not in us to keep ourselves worthy of anything. We are not worthy. Only Christ is worthy. We need to keep him as our focus, as our whole existence should be on Christ. All of our value is only in him. Be careful that we don't turn like this crowd. Turn from bowing before Jesus, casting their garments before him, honoring him as their king, and only a couple of days later, yelling out to crucify him, swayed by the rulers, swayed by the crowd, not thinking for themselves, not looking at what they're doing, but just going with what's going on around them, and I think our churches, not our church, not specifically our church, just churches, people, people who call themselves Christians, are looking at the world as, as if they should be following the world, as if the world has some value in their version of morality and how we should act. And they shouldn't be what's defining Our morality, our beliefs, right? The Bible needs to be our guide. Lord, as we again remember this week and the sacrifice that Jesus is preparing to make at this time, help us to. Keep that at the forefront of our minds, Lord, um, throughout this week as we prepare to gather again on Friday, as we remember his crucifixion, Lord, and what that has offered to us, that forgiveness of our sins, Lord. Help us not to be like this crowd and swayed from one extreme to the other, but help us to stand firm on you and your word and to hold back to that which is true, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name.